Do you want to have impact and purpose without disrupting your life or leaving your day job? Podcasting may be the perfect fit for you, your experience, and your voice. Sign up for my upcoming free course where you will learn how to start podcasting using your unique voice, create a platform in four weeks, get access to resources, and more. Go to www.disruptingbalance.com slash podu. That's P-O-D-U to sign up now. I have faith that black girls are going to be all right. Those are the last few words of the book. And I just remember typing those and just being like, oh my gosh, I wrote a book. <laughs> you know, like, and not only did I write one, I wrote one under this, under these circumstances. That was a real celebratory, it was a personal celebratory moment for me. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast, where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Here's stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back. On today's episode, we have Reverend Christy Lauren Adams. Christy is a woman standing in the power of the present moment while holding space for Black girls and the complexities of their stories. The speaker, author, youth advocate, and ordained minister was born in Brooklyn, New York, but is a self-proclaimed Jersey girl who grew up in the church and found community there while attending schools where most of the students didn't look like her or share in her experiences. And after the devastating loss of a good friend in a murder-suicide at the age of 16, Christy began to seek out her purpose and clarify her relationship with God, all of which led her to a calling where she elevates the Black girl journey and voice. And her award-winning novel, Parable of the Brown Girl, is one of the many outcomes of that calling. Get more information on Reverend Christy Lauren Adams, her book, Parable of the Brown Girl, her upcoming book, Unbossed, Learning from the Righteous Leadership of Black Girls, her work as an instructor of religious studies and philosophy at the Hill School, and much more in the show notes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Today in the guest chair, we have Christy Adams. How are you today, Christy? I'm doing good. How are you? I am well, and I'm so honored to have you here in the guest chair, and listeners will find out why very soon. But we're going to jump right in and start with, what is your story? Well, my story is I um, am a girl that was born in Brooklyn, New York back in the 80s. And my family and I did that great migration that a lot of New Yorkers did and moved to New Jersey and worked in New York because New York was getting a bit crowded. I was uh, am a Jersey girl through and through. And I grew up, I always say I grew up in the church. I'm one of those people. Um, I don't know how many of us there are left, but I definitely grew up in the church. And this was really heavily influenced by my, by my pastor, by our, our leaders, other pastoral leaders, our community leaders was just really 
really heavily involved, not just in, inside of the four walls of the church, but I, also out, outside the educational system and in the community. And, you know, so I am so blessed to have had the upbringing that I did have to be able to say, you know, I, I had a great school system. I, I actually grew up going to public schools and the community that I was living in was had not very many people of color at all. Um, and, uh, and so even out, out, outside of that, I think I, I had some, some real identity issues as a black girl growing up. But I think what really helped to offset that was, was having my church community that was about half hour away and in, in a mainly African-American community, a predominantly African-American congregation and, and not just being around quote unquote, our people, but also having an opportunity to, to serve, to worship and serve. And that was so much a part of my life. I was heavily involved in youth ministry and, I mean, it was more than just a youth group, you know, it was really, truly community-based after-school programs and, you know, summer camps and um, tutoring and entrepreneurship, uh, youth entrepreneurship groups. And I just, I was just really active and I, I'm really blessed. So from there, I went to Temple University for my undergrad experience in Philadelphia. And though I was an advertising major, I felt like there was something missing. What was missing was that active, you know, community, get, get out there lifestyle that I grew up with. And so I tried to bring some of that to, to the university community at Temple, just my experience at Temple in general. And I started a performing arts ministry when I was there. I had a group of friends that I really felt like was my community that was really instrumental in, in just not just my social life, but just our, our, our commitment to serve the Temple community and the North Philadelphia community around us. And so we did a lot. I can't even narrow it down, but we did a lot there at that school. And from there, I actually moved to Virginia Beach for a little while. I didn't really know what I was doing or what I wanted to do and was working at a residential treatment facility for teenage girls. And they had severe emotional difficulties. And honestly, I think there is where I accepted the call um, on my life for advocating for, for Black women and girls, mainly particularly young Black girls, because most of these girls were Black on this unit that I was working in. And I worked there for about six months, and it was, it was very challenging and very difficult, but I, it gave me some, it gave me a semblance of life, you know. I realized that that was my call then. I just don't think that I understood the, the steps that I needed to take after that. From there, I went on, went back to New Jersey, worked as a youth specialist that was a part of our church's community development corporation, was there for about two and a half years, again, doing some community work. And then I went to uh, Princeton Seminary for my, uh, for my master divinity degree. So I was there for three years. And that was an experience in and of itself. It seems like it was just yesterday, but it was pretty, it was a long time ago. It was about 2005 to 2008. And then from there, just summarizing, I went back to my church again and was hired as director of youth ministries. But at some point in the middle of all that, I got licensed and ordained and became youth pastor of that church, a youth pastor at the church. And again, church and community work, really just wanting to give back, not just give back to the community. It was really more about giving back everything that had been poured into me, you know, wanting to see that replicated in some way to the youth at that time. Then I moved to um, Los Angeles area for a little bit, worked as a campus pastor at Azusa Pacific University. I was one of a team of campus pastors out there. It changed my whole life, that whole experience, just moving to the West Coast by yourself, you know, 3,000 miles away. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience for me. 
And so I stayed there for about four years. And then I went to Georgetown University as a chaplain in residence and a Protestant chaplain in an interim basis for a few years. And then um, now I'm here. So I, I sort of did a whole circle. That's like the brief version of my life. But here where I am right now is that I'm at the Hill School uh, in Pennsylvania. So it's not too far from where uh, I grew up, about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am a chaplain here. I am the chaplain and um, I uh, am a religious studies and philosophy faculty member. So I teach four sections of a few courses and um, I am the interim director of diversity, equity and inclusion here, too. So I have a few roles here at the school, but it sort of has come full circle. Yeah, it's interesting. Your life is steeped in the values of the church and all of the experiences that you pulled from the church. And like you said, you, you're trying to give some of that back in these spaces. So I'm curious when you talked about when you actually accepted that calling at any point before that, did you feel that you were rejecting a calling or when you accepted, it was kind of a new revelation? I think, I don't, I don't know if I reject, I think every adolescent may go through, you know, their, they're back and forth a bit, you know? Um, and so I don't know if I rejected it when I was younger. I don't think I knew what I was called to do. I think I really just wanted to know what it meant to have a relationship with God. I used to hear that a lot, you know, and what my life had to do with my faith and making sense of it. That's what I spent the, the first good part of my adolescence trying to figure out. I had a friend, I had a few friends that have passed away, but the the first sort of traumatic experience was a friend who I played basketball with. I was was a basketball player just through and through from when I was in elementary school all the way through high school, and I played year round. So I had a close friend that was on a uh, another. Uh, she was a point guard of a a, high, a local high school. We played on the same summer summer league, and um, she got killed in the most traumatic way, right in the weekend we were supposed to have a tournament and that tournament was canceled and it was Memorial Day weekend. And I got a phone call that she, it was a domestic violence incident. So her father wound up killing her actually. And he, he, he shot her and her mother and, uh, and then killed himself. So it was this sort of triple, triple death. And um, I was about 16 at the time, about 15, 16, 16. And that rocked my little world, of course. You know, you're 16 years old and you're going to a triple funeral. All three of them were buried at the same. And it had had the same funeral service. And seeing your friend buried in her basketball jersey, you know, you're with your team and all that. And you, you have your church life and, you know, you know, you know a bit about it. It's sort of in you, sort of not. And you're just existential crisis moment, you know, where you're like, what is the meaning of all this? And um, so I spent a few years just trying to wrap my head around my faith. I don't know if calling was so much a part of my vocabulary as much as it was, what is this whole thing about anyway, you know? So when I got to college, I really explored that. Calling was probably more of my college thing. It was like, I wanted to live out my purpose at that point. But I think it was also because, you know, when I was in in high school and I think I, I really had the foundation was already there. The template was already there. People were, everything was there. All I had to do was just show up. It wasn't that way at Temple. I had to seek it for myself. And that was when the whole calling, what am am I supposed to be doing? And I focused a lot when I was at Temple on what am I supposed to be doing here at Temple? It really wasn't about like this future thing. 
It was about like, why am I here at the school? What will you have me to do? So I think after, after that, when I graduated and, and worked with those girls, um, I knew, but even after then, I still wasn't sure what it would look like. And I, I may have just pushed it to the side. I just now, you know, when I was writing the book, I traced back and remembered because I'm like, when did this whole thing really come about with me just feeling like I needed to be an advocate for black girls? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, it was like when I worked at it was called a, the Pines Residential Treatment Facility, but the unit was called Wings, Women in Need of Guidance and Support. And it was when I worked on that Wings unit. That was when I knew. But it really didn't really, I think, get legs until years later, even after that. Yeah. And so your work with Black girls, do you find that when you think about it, that was intentional, kind of stepping into that path? And in answering that, let's also talk about the development of the Becoming Conference. My work with Black girls started then and it continued. It wasn't intentional, though. It wasn't until intentional until years later. In my mind, I always just worked with Black girls because I'm a Black woman. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if I'm at the Hill School, my mentality was, like, if I'm at the Hill School now, and it's mostly white people that work here, you know, I'm one of three Black women that work here. But I'm, if I'm in a position of authority here, and it's a, it's a visible position, Black girls on campus, in my mind, of course they're going to come to me. I wasn't thinking... Mm-hmm. You know, in the past, that it was anything more than not coincidence, but, you know, by nature of me being in the role that I'm in. So I felt like I but I, I but I always felt the responsibility to the black girls in the spaces that I was in. But it really wasn't necessarily because of a calling as much as it was because, you know, if if you're going to be in this position, you need to be you know responsible. And there's not many of us. And so if the tables were turned, you know, I, I would want that black woman pouring into my life, you know? So, and I have had black women pour into my life, you know? So that was more the mentality for, for a while. Now, when I worked at my church, again, it was a black church. Even, even though there were black girls there that I was mentoring, you're not really like, you're not separating them, right? Because everybody's black. <laughs> so that was my mentality then. When I went to APU in, in California, I was working with the black girls. But again, because I'm at a school that's mostly white. So black girls were going to, you know, gravitate toward me. So that was always my mentality. It really wasn't until uh, I was actually teaching a vacation Bible school, like a week of vacation Bible school at my church. So I always go back to my church in some way, Um, even though I'm not there now, like full time or really on staff or anything. If I get moments, opportunities when I go home with my family, I'm always going to go back to my church and, and pour back in in some way. So I was off for a summer a few years ago, and this was right before Becoming actually came about. And I I was teaching vacation Bible school, but it was mainly for the girls, and the girls were Black. So we talked about Black, Black womanhood, Black girlhood. This was before Parable of the Brown Girl, before, before everything. But it was just like natural for me, because I'm like, well, I want to talk about scripture, but I want to talk to these girls about being Black girls you know, hair, skin, you know, all that thing, that those things that come up. And one of the days we talked about purpose and there was this work, this worksheet. I wish I could find it. It's a, it was a PDF document and where you filled out 
you know, like they had all they had all these questions and these things that you were like supposed to circle. But at the end, you come up with like a purpose statement slash mission statement. But you use the the questions that had been asked and the words because they'd have like 20 words and then they'd say, OK, circle the the the. the three words that come to mind that when you think of, you know, your life, you know, so you combined all of those questions together. I mean, all those responses together and they, they showed you how to combine them. You, you got all the words and then you formulate the words into sentences. So I formulated mine into like two or three sentences. One was about just ministering in general, but one that stood out was this specific black girl commitment slash calling. The words all formulated into, so I forgot what the sentence was. I know it's in my phone somewhere, but it formulated into a sentence that basically said that my mission in life was to advocate for the wholeness and the well-being of, of young black girls. Because I, I did the sheet with the girls. So the girls were all reading their little you know, mission statements. I read mine, but like it really stood out to me because I was like, wow, I've never, um, I never formulated it like that before. <laughs> like now it makes sense, you know? And, and I think it was maybe like, I don't say, maybe that was 2016 because the Becoming Conference came about in 2017. And yeah, that was 2016, I think that summer. And it made sense. And I was like, wow, this is what I've been doing. But it had been however many years between I, when I was working at the Pines or at the, you know, that residential treatment facility and 2016, when I had formulated the words that, that, oh, this is what one of my mission statements, right? One of my main statements in life. Mm-hmm. And I was also working at a counseling center at the time. I was in between when I left Georgetown, I had about two years or so in between there. And when I, when I started working here at the Hill, so I was home with my parents, applying for jobs and figuring things out. But I was also half working at the church, half working for a Christian wellness center, it was called. So it was a counseling center. And then I was also working at my alma mater at, at Princeton Seminary, their Center for Black Church Studies. So I've always like been able to find these little odd jobs, right? So I was counseling a lot of Black girls. And I said to the director of the counseling center, who was my, my mom's best friend, so she's a close family friend, and um, I said to Miss Welcome, I was like, Miss Welcome, I can't counsel all the black girls like in in the in the world. Like <laughs> it's too many, you know, like that's coming to the center. And we joked about it and we we said, why don't we do like a one day Saturday like like a workshop or something, you know? Because I was telling her that all the girls I was counseling all felt like they were the only ones going through what they were going through. And yet they were all going through like very similar things. Yep. And and they felt very isolated in it. And I was like, well, maybe if we got them in a room and they knew that they weren't alone in it, you know, and because it, it would get to the point where I would be like, I would say, oh, yeah. So, yeah. You remember last week when you said such such and the girl would be like, oh, that wasn't me. You know, I'd get them mixed up because they were all literally saying very similar mm-hmm. things. And so anyway, from there, we talked through the, the one day workshop, but in the counseling center, it was too small. So then we were like, well, let's find a a space. So it just evolved into a one-day conference. And um, we had it at Rutgers, had a facility at Rutgers that was available. We were able to run out. We had about like 125 girls that we could fit in there. And that's how many we had that came to that one. And um, then the next year we had it at um, Princeton Seminary because I was working there. 
they, they, they had a commitment in our, our Center for Black Church Studies, a commitment to Black youth. So we actually had like a dual something. We had something can't be coming conference, but then they also had something for like black youth lead, black youth, adult youth leaders. It was like a training. But so becoming conference, we actually only had it for two years. We planned it the following year. And then the following year, I one of my best friends died really suddenly and I started working here and it just was not going to work for me. I, I needed that time off. And then we had planned a retreat for this year. So that was last year. We planned a retreat for this summer and then the pandemic happened. So the we is like, I had about 12 high school girls working with me. Mm-hmm. So they were helping me plan. We were doing a lot of meeting during the, during the year, like meeting like two, two times a month or so. And then we ramped it up. They helped, you know, lead the workshops. And um, it was a fun experience. If when I when and if I wind up doing it again, they've like aged out a bit. I mean, they're all in college yeah. at this point. So so I'll have to start kind of from scratch, but not really. Usually, usually kids are pretty down. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. But so let's talk about something we discussed in a pre- our previous conversation. I made a note that you said, you know, you never thought you would be a writer. And now you've published one book, Parable of the Brown Girl, and you're working on another one. So let's go back into before Parable and what that experience was for you, because you also mentioned that the opportunity came at the busiest time of your life. (laughs) And I believe you were also grieving at that time. So let's talk about that experience with Parable. So be- before all that happened, <laughs> how it came about, <laughs> yes, um, I just laugh because it just, it feel everything feels like it was such a long time. Last month feels like it was a long time ago. So before Parable, actually it was 2016. I, for some reason, that's a, a year that things happened. But it was about 2016, an acquisitions editor from uh, a publishing company had reached out to me and asked if I had thought about writing a book. And if I would consider writing, they were doing a little bit of recruiting and, you know, the social media platforms is a great way for people to see who's out there. And I had put some of my like essay article writing and things like that on social media. So um, it had been public. And so when she contacted me, I actually told her I didn't really have anything to write about, but I'd love to have a conversation with her. And so we did we wound up talking like via, well, I think we either Skyped or phone. I don't remember, but we just brainstormed some things and I felt like I was trying to force. And, uh, I think I wanted to talk about fear. I mean, I don't even remember. It was just throwing topics out there, but I couldn't figure out if I could talk about any of those things in 45,000 plus words. And, um, so then I actually didn't even, I told her I'd circle back and, and we wound up not even communicating again for probably another six months. It was a while. So when, when we did talk again, I think I had said to her, I think I want to write about black girls. So we talked about that because I always say in every single interview that I've done about Parable of the Brown Girl that my pastor said to me, you write about what you know. And that stuck with me because it was like a two second conversation that we had years prior, <laughs> just like at church, after, after church or something like that. And I randomly saw him and he was like, you should write a book. And I'm like, no, you know, and I was like, I don't have anything to write about. And he's like, you write about what you know. And I was like, I don't know anything, you know, and then I just moved on. But it just stuck with me, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so 
I said, what do I know? What do I know? What do I know? I was <laughs> just thinking, and, oh, I know black girls. When I wound up circling back to her, that was when I had been doing the counseling and working at the counseling center. And, um, and so they were very, there wasn't anything else happening. Like one of the things I'm, I don't say critical of in my, in, in my life right now is how much I give to the institutions that I work for. And, you know, this isn't me like knocking my job, <laughs> but I'm just saying like at that time I wasn't working for any real institution. I was literally just doing what I love to do. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so my whole existence every day was black girls. And so that was what I knew. So that was, that's why I think I was able to say that. I think had I been working at some place like where I am now, I'd be like, I know higher ed, you know, <laughs> or whatever, independent school. So I said, I know black girls. And I circled back to her, talked that through. And I brainstormed with my, one of my best friends. And I said, I want to call it something like gospel, something black girls, something where Jesus meets these black girls, because I have been counseling them. And I feel like we it's just a party of two, just the two of us. And these girls have so much wisdom to share and nobody's ever going to hear what they have to say. And if I ever get the platform, you know, I'm going to try to center them. But I'm like, these are like the Jesus stories of the Jesus stories, because Jesus is always like meeting random people in these random places. And I felt like these girls are like who Jesus would meet. So uh, Ash was like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's parables. And I was like, parables, brown girl, that's it. <laughs> so that's how the title came about. I mean, just like a random conversation. Put together the, the, the what do you call it, the proposal, um, pitched it to the editor she loved it she's like this is great I'm pushing this through she took it to her the committees because there's like different committees that have to approve it in, in these these publishing companies and it didn't even really get past the first committee they were like you know they wanted me to redo it and to write it a little bit more broadly where the audience wouldn't be so narrow and um I she told me that she was very disappointed she was really upset about it and she emailed me back and, you know, asked if I would think it through. And I did for like literally five seconds because I was like, this is the point I'm trying to make. Black girls is always, always having to share, you know, they can't ever be the story. They have to be a part of the story. And so it just made me mad. And I'm glad it made me mad because I, there was one part which was, oh, they came to me. They asked me if I wanted to write and I figured out what I wanted to write about and, you know, okay, I'll write about black girls. Well, then the second part of it became, now I'm supposed to write about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now I'm mad. Now they're proving my point. This is the fire that I need to really push this thing. I didn't have the fire before and, uh, and I didn't have a publishing company. So now at that point I had to go pitch it. So I'm like, well, I have a, I could have just said, oh, forget it. But I was like, I have a proposal. I'm mad. And I need to send it somewhere. So I found two, there were two places that took unsolicited manuscripts that I pitched to that I happened to sort of know, know some people there uh, from Twitter. And um, both of them came back favorably, but I chose Fortress at the time because in seminary, I had read a lot of authors who were from Fortress. And I, I even though I'm not a PhD, I wanted to be taken seriously like as a scholar. And so I wanted to go with the more academic publishing company because they were both great companies so I went with Fortress 
signed that contract, but I had waited because there was a lot of waiting, you know, and it wasn't even as long as, as people would normally wait. I mean, people would normally wait months. This was really accelerated for me, but, but I was wanting it to hurry up because I wanted to, I, I wanted to sign the contract and then get started and have time to write before I started my new job. But I had started this job here at the Hill right around the same time I had moved to Pennsylvania. And I didn't know what I was getting into with this job. I think I thought it was just a job, you know, that you just go to and then you go home. But here it is a 24, especially now in the pandemic, you know, from what I've shared, it's a 24 hour job, quite literally. So I was just getting adjusted to that, starting to get adjusted. And so I signed the contract and was trying to figure out when I was going to have time to write because I just didn't have any. And then I got a phone call that my, my, one of my best friends from high school, Andre, had died. He had a seizure and he died. I just did. I was just so confused. It was just the worst time <laughs> to write a book. And so I just started school. I already had to take off a day or two to, to go to the funeral. And you know, I was a part of the part of the funeral service. And, um, you know, somebody that, you know, when I was when I was a teenager and was really, I always considered myself a very angry black girl. I feel like I can re- relate to a few of the girls in the book. The angry black girl is one of them. And I felt like I was just really angry. And this is somebody that I met when I transferred to schools that just brought a lot of joy into my life. And I will say just changed this, transformed my whole persona just from our friendship alone. And to be writing a book about this and to, and to lose that type, that person was like very significant for me. So I wrote, I started writing the book. So let's say Andre died September 7th. I signed the contract August 31st, which was actually his birthday. And then then he died on the 7th. And I probably took another two, two and a half weeks to start writing. My, my manuscript was actually supposed to be due January 1st, which was pretty fast. But I, I couldn't get it together. And so I started writing end of September. And I think I wanted the writing to be when I just had all this time and energy and I just didn't. Every time I wrote, I would look at my my week and I would say, okay, Wednesday's classes are over early. We have a faculty meeting. Oh Lord, I hope my boss don't hear this. <laughs> we have a faculty meeting after. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip the faculty meeting, duck out, leave campus, go to Starbucks, you know, and work for three hours. You know, my dog was at her little daycare. Go get my dog, come back, and then be on duty that night or have our, the service that I have for the kids and, on Wednesday nights or whatever it is. That's how I write. The, my students, I teach religion and film class. They, they don't always watch the films in class, but when they did, I was in the back editing, you know. So that was how I wrote Parable of the Brown Girl. And, and even when I did, I would be driving, like, Lord, let's say, okay, I have an afternoon off. I really could use a nap. I am exhausted, you know? And then I would just be like, no, I can't. I have to write. I'm going to get some coffee. I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive to Panera, <laughs> you know? And I just remember calling my mom on the way to, way to the, one of those places one, one day. And I said, mom, I'm just, I'm just so sad. Like I'm sad all the time, you know, I'm sad and I'm tired all the time. And I feel guilty because I'm, I'm, I want to give my best to this book. And, and write my best. And I'm not at my best. And I don't know what's going to come of this thing, you know, not to bring it down. But that was, <laughs> that was, 
how I wrote parable. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like the parable process is was quite the emotional dynamic for you or interplay because you were grieving in the beginning and then you went through this process as you explained. And then once it actually launched, there was a different feeling and emotion than would be expected. Let's talk a little bit about how your feelings around the launch of Parable. Yeah, it was bittersweet. The best moment for me with Parable and Brown Girl was when I, there was like the last few words that I typed. I remember there's a sentence. I'm sorry, I'm looking at it. I said, I have black, I have faith that black girls are going to be all right. Those are the last few words of the book. And I just remember typing those and just being like, oh my gosh, I wrote a book, <laughs> you know, like, and not only did I write one, I wrote one under this, under these circumstances. That was a real celebratory. It was a personal celebratory moment for me because I, my, my boss, I remember saying to me like, congratulations. I saw you wrote on Twitter that you, you know, finished your first manuscript. And I was like, what you really need to be congratulating me for <laughs> is the fact that not just that I wrote the book, but that I wrote the book while I'm working here. <laughs> so he was like, okay. I was just so amazed. I was so grateful to God. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I wrote it and was miserable the whole time and had no time to write it, but yet it still got done. So that was the best moment for me. And I could breathe for a little bit after then. And then when it came out, when it was starting to come out at least, and actually when it did launch, I'll say like my release party, it was both. I had to learn that, you know, you could be grieving and be celebrating at the same time, right? Like mm-hmm. both of those things could, could exist simultaneously. You could have a great year and have highs, you know, and still be grieving that you don't have to push one to the side for the other and that they both exist. And that I literally feel like I was the embodiment of that when Parable came out because people are, are you so excited? You're so excited, you know, they, and I'm glad people were excited. <laughs> I was excited, but it was a different, you know, it was different. I don't, uh, I don't think I've disappointed anybody by, by my like expressions. I was, I was just genuinely, um, I was happy, but it was bittersweet. You know, because when I think about writing the book, I think about pain. <laughs> and so, but, but what really, what got me going is that the girls, you know, the girls, the girls, it was, it's, it's always been about the girls. And that brings, brings me a lot of joy. It brought me a lot of joy at the time. And if that's what I had to go through, you know, uh, in order to bring out their pain and their, you know, the goodness that came from, from their own lives and their own struggles, then so be it, you know? So when it came out, it was, it was both and, and then the, and now for it to, you know, be existing within the, within this pandemic is also interesting. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So what would you say parable and the writing of parable has taught you for this new book? Are there little things you know for sure that you want to do differently or are you just kind of going with the flow of this current time and space you're in? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's that's my answer. Yes. I am. What it's taught me is to give myself permission for there to not be a template for having to go about and doing things. I think y'all want 
you know, have, have perfect processes in our head for how things should go. And parable was its own process. And this new book, on, uh, it's, it's tentatively called Unbossed, colon, Learning from the Righteous Leadership of Black Girls or some, something along those lines. And I'll explain a little bit more in a bit. But so this book is not parable, you know, and, and the process for this book will not be parable. And I've had to spend more time saying that to myself over and over and over again <laughs> for a bunch of reasons. Number one, the process for parable was triggering. So I'm like, please don't let anybody die during this. You know, like that was that was my first, even though I'm laughing, it was my first thing, you know, like in order to have a, a, a successful book, do I have to go through, you know, suffering? So that was my mentality in the beginning, just getting that together. Then also, I don't have, I don't have Starbucks and Panera to run off to like I did before because we're in a pandemic, you know, and I, and I'm still working here. And so I'm not really a right in your, in your living space person, but I've had to be that because that's where I, you know, I can write in my office, I can write there, but I like to leave where I am to go to write someplace else. And so this process has been different because I can't leave where I am per se you know I can but not really you know yeah and then also but the 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 intent is the same highlighting black girls that's the same you know putting their stories out there and this is putting their stories out there even more intentionally than parable parable was putting girls stories out in a very general sense that 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 you know were anonymous stories they reflected you know multiple, multiple girls' experiences and generations of girls' experiences. Whereas on Boss, it, these are specific girls, like their names are real, their lives are real. It is quite literally their story, you know? So that's a little bit different, but the, the intention is the same to, to put them on a platform and center them. And yeah, um, so it's, it's been difficult to write. It's been, I think it's been harder to write than Parable because I had a little, you had a little bit more flexibility with the pandemic because now with the school year that we have now, you know, I told you it was 80 minute classes before our classes were only 45 minutes, 45, 50 minutes. I had more breaks. I don't really have the breaks that I had before. So I have to steal time very differently. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I do think the ability to adapt you know, in these circumstances, it's kind of what makes us great, mm-hmm. even though we don't realize that's the process. But, we, you know, in hindsight, it's like, wow, I did it kind of like the way you did parable mm. in the moment. I'm sure you weren't thinking, OK, this is going to be great. It's going to work out, mm-hmm. you know, so that's a good thing. Okay, so in your book, you had some really thoughtful words and really poignant moments and stories from the young girls that stuck with me. And a note that I made was on a couple pages and the words were the thought that black women possess a certain level of power confers honor and distinction, but it also sacrifices their ability to be vulnerable, leaving no room for weakness. And then you pick up on another page with, therefore, weakness becomes a divine imperative for God to reveal his power through us. So my question is, what is the weakness that God used 
to reveal his power to you. Wow. That's deep. <laughs> Sorry, I had to give you that. <laughs> I love it. Oh, the week I said that. Ooh, I might have said it already. In this process, at least, I was at my weakest writing this book. I will say the weakest that I had been if, if in, a, in a long time. The fact that it got done, I mean, that's a miracle to me, <laughs> you know? Mm. And you can't really even take credit for that. It just becomes like, you know, you can't say like, oh, I wrote, I was, I was quite literally very, very weak and exhausted. So I was physically weak. I was emotionally weak, spiritually weak, just hanging on the threads, I feel like. And yet God was able to, to write through me. Sometimes I hear just like when you're just reading the words, I'm like, who wrote that? You know, mm-hmm. not that's like, oh, I'm so amazing. It just becomes like you hear what was able to be produced as a result of that. So part of the reason why I said when I started writing on Boss, I was like, do I need to go through that in order for, <laughs> for it to come out again? Because I, I, I don't know. I don't think I wanted to, you know. But yeah, when I was at my weakest, God was quite literally at, at his strongest in me to be able to put this, this work out. It's quite a humbling experience because any, anything that comes after that draws attention to the book, to the goodness that comes from the book, you quite literally can't take credit for it. You know, it's not one of those like, oh, no, the Lord, he's used me. You know, it's not it's not even a, a, a performance. Yeah, it is a lived experience. Right. Where you're like, wow, you, you step back and you you're just like you just can't take credit. You know, I think just being a being a vessel. But the fact that God revealed such a strength through such a weak vessel. And uh, like I said, to, to write those last few words of the chapter and then and then say, wow, my gosh, that happened. You know, I think I thought I had to be at my strongest to write the book, you know, and that I had to be mentally strong. And you, you want to be. It makes sense. Mentally strong to write that much. You need to be to be physically strong, to be well rested, you know, to have the time that those are the best circumstances to write, to write a book. But there was not one circumstance that I feel like under the, under the, this process of writing that, that was like, you know, intended. It all just, just happened. Mm -hmm. So everything that has happened in the wake of, of, of the book being published has just been one humbling moment after another, you know, and I got, um, there's two like awards that the book is getting one. And both of those ceremonies are supposed to be in New York. Right. I was just telling my best friend the other day. So I got one, I didn't know about one. I knew about it's like New York black librarians caucus. That was in, in November. And then something that's coming up that I'm not supposed to say anything about until it happens. I don't know why, but so, <laughs> So that's like next Saturday uh, when they emailed me about it. They said you were nominated for the young adult book something. And then then they said you were nominated and you won. I didn't even know I was nominated. And uh, they said, you know, I, I Googled the event and I'm like, wow, it looks like a really nice event. It's at the Schomburg Museum, you know, like it's like done up. Well, this one's on Zoom. <laughs> so I told Ebony, I said, Ev, this has been, I mean, you can't get more. Like, 
<laughs> just she's like, just be grateful for the award. Be grateful for the award, girl. I'm like, I'm grateful. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> like, I am very grateful. But these are just reminders. It's reminders of the year that we're in, you know? And and these like little bittersweet reminders where even in this, it's like I wanted to get dressed up and to go out and to just be able to celebrate an accomplishment. And even then you're like, okay, God, here we go again. <laughs> I'm, I'm humble. Believe me. I get it. I am Christy Adams, and I am disrupting balance by intentionally centering young Black girls and their lived experiences. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balance Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon.